This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have another episode for you in store with no real theme. I guess all things not COVID. Uh, John, welcome back. Hey, Mike. How is it going? Not too bad. Uh, off of the COVID ward and things are busy in Toronto and it looks like the exact same in Calgary. Yeah, same. Just finished up a few days on the COVID floor. So it'll be nice to uh, talk about some non-COVID stuff. Perfect. With that segue, what do you have up for us first today? Uh, So first up, we're going to talk about a paper published in New England Journal of Medicine, November 2020. It's Rivaroxaban in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation and Bile Prosthetic Mitral Valves. This was by Guimaraes HP et al. All right. And what was the research question here? They wanted to know what is the optimal anticoagulation in patients with AFib and a bioprosthetic mitral valve? Yes. And the answer to that question, I think, is warfarin. Isn't that a done deal? Why, why are we talking about this? You're right. So warfarin is the recommendation. I guess it's actually based on somewhat limited randomized control trial data. For the new kids, well, maybe the old kids on the block, you know, the DOACs, there's been some signal in some subgroup analyses. For rivaroxaban, the famous Rocket AF trial, which showed non-inferiority in rivaroxaban to warfarin for non-valvular AFib, did not include patients with bioprosthetic valves. So they figured, well, why not do a randomized controlled trial to see if Riva might be safe and effective? All right. So sounds like a randomized controlled trial. Tell us a bit more about the study design. It was. So in RCT, they used a non-inferiority open label design with blinded adjudication of the outcomes. Uh, This was done in Brazil, 49 sites. Patients were over the age of 18 and they had all flavors of AFib, so permanent, paroxysmal, or persistent, and they had to have had a bioprosthetic mitral valve with the plan to or already receiving oral anticoagulation. Uh, They were included at least 48 hours after surgery. Uh, you know, for exclusion criteria, they, they, in quotation marks, said extremely high bleeding risk. And when you dig through the supplements, that meant like a recent GI bleed that was clinically significant or a history of intracranial bleed. The protocol was a randomization of one-to-one rivaroxaban to warfarin. So for riva, it was 20 or 15 milligrams once a day, depending on your creatinine clearance. And the warfarin dose was to target an INR of two to three. Uh, A bunch of different outcomes. The primary outcome was a composite of death, major cardiovascular events, so that included things like stroke, TIA, valve thrombosis, CHF, as well as major bleeding at 12 months. Uh, They calculated this restricted mean survival time, which maybe we'll talk a bit about later on. Um, And then they looked at some secondary outcomes, including composites of death from cardiovascular events, and then safety-wise, bleeding complications was the main point. Gotcha. So non-inferiority, open-label RCT, really getting randomized to warfarin versus Riva, and included anyone who had a fib and a mitral valve replacement. Is that right? Correct. All right, cool. So uh, what did the patients look like who were included? So a thousand patients were enrolled and randomized. Uh, the average age was 59. 60% were female, 13% with diabetes, with hypertension, 13% with stroke, 40% with CHF. The average BMI was about 26. Most of these patients had permanent AFib, 61%. The average CHADS-VASC was 2.6. The average HAS-BLED was 1.6. 75% of patients were on warfarin at baseline prior to enrollment. Now, patients were randomized after their mitral valve was implanted, but 18% of the patients were randomized within three months of the valve, but 60% were randomized even somewhere between one year and 10 years after. So there was some variability in sort of time of enrollment. And patients were on warfarin for a therapeutic range of around 65% of the time. 
Gotcha. And primary outcome um, was River Rocks being non-inferior to Warfarin? Yeah, so it met criteria. The mean time to event in the River Oxvan group was 347 days, and it was 340 days in the Warfarin group. So that met their criteria for non-inferiority. When it comes to some of the secondary outcomes, there was this composite of death from cardiovascular events, and that occurred in 3.4% in the River Oxaban group and 5% in the Warfarin group. Incidence of total stroke, stroke was not common, but 0.6% in the River group, 2.4% in Warfarin group. And then valve thrombosis, again, not a common event, but happened in 1% of the River group and 0.6% of the stroke group. As for major bleeding, there was no major bleeding difference in the two groups. 1.4% uh, of patients in the River Oxaban group had a bleeding complication and 2.6% in the Warfarin group. They did show a signal for lower rates of intracranial bleeding specifically. Hmm. Well, this is actually pretty impressive by the looks of it. Uh, what are some limitations? So a couple of considerations, you know, this was open label, but they did use blinded adjudication of the outcomes. It wasn't a multinational study, and so there could be questions around the external validity. Uh, Warfarin patients were only therapeutic 65% of the time, but I don't know, maybe that's actually closer to real life, but you're comparing river oxaban, which we know is going to be therapeutic pretty much all of the time, to a lot of patients who weren't necessarily therapeutic on their warfarin. There was a lot of variability in those randomized from the time of surgery. Um, you know, not a lot of people within the first three months, a lot of people anywhere from one year to 10 years out, how that might've impacted the outcome. I think that's where this analysis that they use tried to take that into account. So this restricted mean survival time, I don't know if you've come across it, but I think one of the reasons to use it is that it's not dependent one on the number of events, but also on the assumption of proportional hazards. So I'm not sure if maybe that helps take things into account. And then, of course, by design, we can't speak to other things like, you know, the role for river oxaban in mechanical valves. Yeah, and no, that's a great point for sure. And I think I know based on previous sort of meta-analyses, that sort of time being therapeutic with warfarin, about 65%, that's totally in line with what we see from other studies and in the real world. And I guess with rivaroxaban, we just don't really have a way of knowing were they therapeutic or not totally dependent on their adherence to it. But okay, interesting stuff. Um, take home point here. Uh, so it looks like river oxaban is safe and effective for patients with AFib and a bioprosthetic mitral valve. Okay, yes. And bioprosthetic, I feel like the whole time in my brain, I was thinking mechanical, but, but you're right. We're talking bioprosthetic. Okay, so practice changing for you? Yeah, well, actually, to be totally honest with you, when I first just saw the headline quickly, I just made the assumption that they were looking at mechanical valves, and that's why I was going to dig into this paper further. Um, so I'm not sure if it's practice changing, but it is a good reminder to read the title and the abstract in more detail before picking your paper. Fair, fair. I feel like I, I thought the exact same thing, so I'm sure we're not the only two. And uh, I guess we know at least it appears non-inferior if it's bioprosthetic. But yeah, the, the real question is, how about the mechanical mitral valves? All right, cool. Well, I don't have a good segue, so I'm just going to switch to my article, completely unrelated to cardiology. Um, this was published in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. It was a development and validation of a penicillin allergy clinical decision rule published in 2020. So what was the question here? So, you know, their specific objective was simple and I think really clinically relevant. They wanted to develop and validate a penicillin allergy clinical decision rule that enables, you know, point of care decision making. Uh, does this patient truly have a penicillin allergy or not? Oh, I can, I can see a lot of reasons why this would be important. Why was it important for you? Yeah, I mean, not a day goes by when I'm working in the hospital and I see a chart that says 
penicillin allergy. And most of the time, there is no penicillin allergy. But that label can certainly influence decision making and behavior. And previously, studies have shown that if a patient has a penicillin allergy on their chart, they're more likely to get a broad spectrum antibiotic. But I think most of the time, the penicillin allergy ain't real. That's fair. And I'm sure just from like a microbial stewardship resistance perspective, this has big clinical implications. So what was the study design? So this was a prospective cohort at two hospitals in Melbourne, Australia. So they developed and validated this decision rule at these two sites and then externally validated it across a thousand patients retrospectively in Australia and multiple centers in the U.S., And essentially, the way it worked in these first 1,000 patients in the prospective uh, cohort, all patients reported a penicillin allergy and underwent penicillin allergy testing thereafter, should that be skin prick, intradermal, patch testing, or oral challenge. And their goal is to then, you know, see what happened, what proportion of these patients actually had true uh, allergy detected on testing, and then to identify predictors of that. So there's a lot of complex statistics that go into this paper. I'm not going to go through it, but that's the study design in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, What did people look like? So as noted, there was this prospective cohort of, I think I said a thousand people, but it was closer to 600 people. And then the validation cohort, um, which included over a thousand people. So all the individuals were um, typically over the age of 16 or 18. So this is adults, not children. And in the prospective cohort, average age was 60, 60% were women. Um, Most reported an allergy to penicillin, like specifically rather than ampicillin, amoxicillin. And 50% were quote unquote immunocompromised. It's really important to highlight that their definition was pretty broad. So that could have included anyone with a connective tissue disorder, anyone with cancer, or sort of people we more traditionally think of as being immunocompromised with stem cell transplant, uh, other hematologic malignancy, or on 10 milligrams of prednisone daily for more than one month. So that's sort of what the patients looked like. We don't have a ton of additional granular details. Okay. So what did they find? Yeah. So um, what they found here was that a small number of questions can really help to rule out whether or not somebody has a penicillin allergy. So the mnemonic they came up with was PENFAST. Okay. So PEN stands for penicillin, F stands for five years ago. So if somebody reported, oh yeah, I had a penicillin allergy and it was three years ago, okay, all right, you get two points for that. The A in PENFAST stands for anaphylaxis or angioedema. The S stands for severe cutaneous reaction and T stands for treatment required. So the patient's like, oh yeah, I went to the eMERGE and you know, they gave me a shot or they did something. So um, they then came up with these major and minor criteria. So the major was the pen F part of it. So um, this penicillin allergy in the past five years, two points. If they report anaphylaxis or angioedema, two points. If they report a severe cutaneous reaction, two points. And the minor criteria was whether or not treatment was required, which is just one point. So you got this mnemonic, you got all these points. How do we actually use this? All right. So patients were designated to be low risk if they had less than three points. So if you had less than three points, the risk of having an allergy confirmed on actual testing was about 4%. Said differently, 96% chance that they do not have a penicillin allergy. Um, That corresponds to a negative predictive value of 96% and an AUC or area under the curve of um, 0.8, which is pretty impressive. 
And fast. Very cool. Uh, what are some limitations here? So whenever you're you know, building these models, they went through all of the right steps in that they did this prospectively, and then they validated it in separate data sets. That's terrific. But always bigger is better when you're developing these rules. It would have been great if they had thousands of patients in the prospective development and thousands of patients uh, in this external validation. Because without that, you might not have important subgroups of patients. So it was very rare to have patients over the age of 80. And in GIM, most of my patients are over the age of 80. They also had some issues with um, missing data as well. But overall, pretty impressive stuff here. Yeah, very cool. So what's your take on point? So I think this is really useful to rule out a penicillin allergy. Um, Yeah, that's the take home point. Cool. Practice changing for you? Absolutely. Right now, I'm just sort of making a gestalt decision about whether or not I think this is a penicillin allergy. And instead, I can just ask a couple of questions. You have a penicillin allergy. Okay. Did it happen in the last five years? No, uh, it was when I was a baby. Okay. You get no points there. Was it anaphylaxis? No, I don't think so. I got some hives. Okay. You get no points there. Was it a severe cutaneous reaction? Uh, what do you mean by that? Like Steven Johnson syndrome, your skin was sloughing off, you're in the ICU. Uh, no, that didn't happen. Okay, cool. 96% chance you don't have a penicillin allergy. Here's your penicillin. Time to see the next patient. Very nice. All right, John. So um, back to you. What's up next? So we'll go from allergies to the kidneys. And next we're going to talk about dapagliflozin in patients with chronic kidney disease. This was published in New England Journal, October 2020 by Herspink et al. Cool. Research question. They wanted to know what is the long-term efficacy and safety of dapagliflozin in patients with chronic kidney disease in those with or without type 2 diabetes? Yeah, these SGLT2s have just been a gold mine for... Uh, their manufacturers, their investors. And hey, I mean, for patients too, like patients are getting a lot better with these drugs. So anyway, why was this important to you? So outside of ACE inhibitors, ARBs, there is really no other medication that's been shown to slow decline in renal function. SGLT2 inhibitors, as you've identified, seem to be a bit of a wonder drug. In trials with type 2 diabetes patients, it's been shown that they have favorable effects on the kidneys as well as cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, the Credence trial looked at canagliflozin, and in type 2 diabetes patients with CKD, they showed renal and cardiovascular protection. So what about dapagliflozin in patients with CKD, who both have but also do not have type 2 diabetes? Yep, this is an impressive study. Okay, what was the design here? This was a good old-fashioned, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial. 21 countries were involved across 386 sites. Uh, Adults with a GFR between 25 and 75, as well as a urine ACR of 200 to 5,000 were included. They did exclude some specific patients like those with type 1 diabetes, polycystic kidney disease, lupus nephritis, and cavasculitis. Randomization-wise, patients got either 10 milligrams of DAPA once daily or placebo, and they were stratified by diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, as well as the extent of urine ACR. Uh, They did stop recruitment for GFRs between 60 to 75 earlier on just to ensure that no more than 10% of the trial had stage 2 CKD. And when it came to the outcomes, the primary outcome was a composite of decline of at least 50% GFR, onset of end-stage renal disease, need for transplantation, or a GFR of less than 15 at the second measurement, or death from renal or cardio causes. There were a bunch of secondary outcomes and they looked at serious adverse events for both groups. 
Cool. So we got a double blind placebo controlled randomized trial of adults who may or may not have had diabetes and had a GFR from 25 to 75 or a bunch of protein in their urine. And the primary outcome was a composite of all sorts of renal badness. Does that sound right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And what do the patients look like? So about 4,000 patients were randomized. The average age was 61. 33% were female. The average GFR was 43 mils per minute, and the median ACR was 949. Now, 68% of these patients did have type 2 diabetes. 31% were on an ACE inhibitor, 66% on an ARB at baseline. The median follow-up was two and a half years. Um, Dapagliflozin and placebo were discontinued in 12 and 14% of participants in their respective groups, and 99% of patients completed the trial. Impressive stuff here. Okay, what did they find? Well, even more impressive, the trial was stopped early because of efficacy. So for the primary outcome, which was that composite of renal decline, death from cardiorenal causes, it occurred in 9.2% in the DAPA group versus 14% in the placebo group. That's a hazard ratio of 0.61, very significant with a, with a confidence interval between 0.51 and 0.72. Event rates for all of the components favored dapagliflozin, and the number needed to treat was 19. Now, if you sort of break things down based on one's diabetes status or not, among those with type 2 diabetes, the hazard ratio showed a 36% relative risk reduction for the primary outcome. And in those without type 2 diabetes, the hazard ratio showed a 50% relative reduction for primary outcome. Among those secondary outcomes, uh, one of them was a composite of renal outcomes. So, you know, 50% reduction in GFR, end-stage renal disease, death from renal causes. The hazard rate was 0.56, favoring dapagliflozin. A composite of death from cardiovascular causes or hospitalization with CHF, the hazard ratio was 0.71, again, favoring dapagliflozin. 4.7% of deaths occurred in the DAPA group and 6.8% of patients in the placebo group died. When it comes to safety, pretty impressive. Very similar between the two groups. There was no DKA in the DAPA group. And in fact, there was two patients in the placebo, in the placebo group. There was one case of Fourniers, but that occurred in the placebo group. And there was no difference in amputation, in fractures, in volume depletion, in hypoglycemia between the two groups. Yep. Okay. This is impressive. So, uh, you know, I think you hit us with a lot of impressive, impressive facts and stats here. I guess, you know, the biggest one that caught my eye is just this primary outcome. 5% absolute reduction is really freaking impressive. And like you said, you know, a number needed to treat of about 19 for two and a half years to prevent this composite of renal decline, death from cardiorenal causes, et cetera. Wowzers. Okay. Main limitations here. Now, yeah, I guess we have to acknowledge that about two-thirds of the patients did have diabetes, but with that said, you know, the subgroup who did not have diabetes had just as much benefit from this drug. Yeah, it is impressive. I just, I don't understand. Like, we know that these drugs cause DKA, so how is it that not a single patient slipped through this study with, with DKA? I guess I'm just mm, a little bit uh, curious but anyway, this is your study, not mine. Is this practice changing uh, for you? This is a really big deal. Dapagliflozin reduces risk of renal function decline and death from renal and cardiovascular causes in those with CKD. You know, this is definitely going to be practice changing. What's still to be determined is that there are subgroups of patients with CKD who do not have albuminuria, for example. And they weren't included in this trial. And so I guess we don't know if that applies to them. But if you've got a patient with, you know, the GFR decline that we see in the study and uh, an amount of proteinuria, strongly consider putting them on dapagliflozin. 
Yeah, and I guess I just have to agree with that. And especially if they have diabetes, if they don't have diabetes, I, I mean, I guess technically we need to wait for Health Canada to update the label. Anyway, cool stuff for the SGLT2s. All right, and continuing on with the lack of segues because all of these articles are unrelated, um, this one is entitled Automated Identification of Adults at High Risk of In-Hospital Clinical Deterioration. And so what was the question here? Yeah, so this is a study published in New England that asked a really simple question. Do we really need human doctors anymore? I hope the answer is yes, but why is this important? You know, human doctors are expensive, error-prone, overconfident. So, you know, really what this study is looking at is can an algorithm help to identify patients at risk of clinical deterioration? That's really the meat of the matter. And as you'll see quite soon, they had a very clever way of evaluating the potential impact of this algorithm. So I know you like your machine learning and your fancy computer language stuff. Were they doing this in this study? What was the study design? Yeah, so we'll keep it simple. You know, it was a multi-center cohort study at 21 hospitals in the Kaiser Permanente network of hospitals in the U.S., and all of these hospitals had the same EHR epic. So what they first did was they built a model and then they implemented it and then they evaluated it. So the goal of this model was, can we essentially develop an algorithm that reviews in real time the patient's labs, vitals, comorbid conditions, severity of illness, and identify those at an increased risk of clinical deterioration, and then implement it. So um, the model was built itself using um, data from 2010 to 2013. I'm not going to go into the various machine learning methods that were applied because it's probably going to just sort of put people to sleep. But suffice it to say, they built a robust model that did a pretty good job of discriminating people at high risk of deterioration versus lower risk of deterioration. After they built that model, of course, you want to see what happens when you implement it. And, you know, here's the beauty of it. Different hospitals had implementation at different points of time. So you can imagine that you can compare the outcomes of patients in hospitals where this was implemented and other hospitals that were about to implement it but hadn't implemented it quite yet. And as this algorithm is crunching numbers and coming up with these predictions, it's not as if the doctor's being pinged with these predictions every time. Instead, there's actually a nurse who's working remotely, who's seeing these risk thresholds being calculated, these risk predictions, pardon me, uh, being calculated. And then the decision can be made, you know, do we notify the physician? Do we notify the outreach team? Do we get an early palliative care consultation? So that's a little bit about the model being created and then subsequently uh, implemented. And the primary outcome was to compare the outcomes of patients dead or alive, 30 days thereafter, among people, again, who were hospitalized, either at sites where this was implemented or at sites where it wasn't yet implemented, but coming soon. Okay. So an interesting little natural experiment, it sounds like. Uh, what was the table one? What, who did these people look like? Yeah. So thinking about the sort of data set itself, it included 620,000 hospitalizations from 2015 to 2019. 10% were ineligible because they didn't include patients who were being admitted to the intensive care unit. 
So you had 550,000 um, eligible hospitalizations. That's a ton of data for an algorithm to get pretty good at predicting who's going to do well and who isn't going to do well. Um, within that set, the sort of threshold alarm, uh, the alert rate went off for 7%. So that's 44,000 patients and 16,000 were in hospitals where um, this was fully implemented and 29,000 were in hospitals where it wasn't yet implemented. So at all sites, there was an algorithm that was predicting the risk, but only at some of the sites was it actually uh, implemented so that it could be acted upon. Um, average age of patients was 66, half were men, 75% were admitted from the emergency department, 95% were full code, and the overall risk of death within 30 days between the two groups was um, about 5%. Okay. What was the main finding here? So if you looked at unadjusted differences between the sites where the intervention was implemented versus not, you saw lower mortality. So uh, about a 5% reduction uh, in mortality, a reduction in ICU utilization and reduction of length of stay. Of course, you need to adjust for potential variables that might account for this. So after adjusting for that, you observed about a 16% relative risk reduction in the risk of death uh, by 30 days. So that corresponds to an absolute difference of a, a 4% reduction in mortality mm, said maybe somewhat clearer. That's like three deaths avoided per thousand patients per year and a lower ICU utilization. That's pretty impressive, all from basically a computer algorithm. What are some limitations here? Yeah, so it's not randomized. You know, hospitals weren't randomly assigned to have this intervention be running or not. It was sort of the stepwise approach, which was neat for a research standpoint, but, you know, obviously inferior to a randomized trial. And then also keep in mind, it wasn't just an algorithm, but there's also, you know, a nurse who's reviewing this and working behind the scenes on this. Nurses cost money, okay? So somebody's got to pay that price. And then you also wonder about how well this is necessarily going to work in other healthcare systems. You also worry a lot about sort of biases in, in, uh, in medicine, and certainly machine learning can pick up on those biases and not in a good way. Okay, what was your take-home point? A take-home point, I just think this is a beautiful example of the potential for machine learning and other you know, kind of basic data analytics to maybe improve the care we're delivering by identifying patients at high risk of clinical deterioration. This is pretty amazing. I mean, I think there is always that at the bedside, you can get a good sense if someone is stable or unstable. But of course, you can't be at all the bedsides all the time. So if this helps to identify some of those patients who are crashing and you don't even know it, very impressive. Does this change practice for you? I mean, can it change practice, I guess? Yeah. So, you know, there is a similar initiative going on at um, St. Michael's Hospital led by Amol Verma, Mohammed Mamdani, and I'm very much so a middleman on this project, but I'm quite excited about the preliminary results that we observed and looking forward to sharing those because I, I do think right now at St. Michael's Hospital, this is essentially implemented. And I wouldn't be surprised if at other hospitals, something similar gets implemented. It's just like you said, you know, we can't have our eyes on every patient at every point in time. And so yeah, I think this could be practice changing. Very cool. Uh, well, I guess we got some time left for some good stuff. Did you find any good stuff from the last month or two? Yeah, I, I certainly did. This one is from, um, you know, Biden's inauguration. 
and it's the speech or I guess more so the poetry delivered by a young woman by the name of Amanda Gorman, just an absolutely moving delivery and content. And I, I ain't no poet, but just listening to this, you have uh, such an appreciation for the power of poetry. So that is my good stuff to share. Oh, very good. I'll check that out. How about you? What do you got? Well, we're going to bring things back to Canada. Uh, this is a very Canadian story. So it's about customers fundraising to send a Tim Hortons employee back to school. Tim Hortons in Vaughan, Ontario, just a little north of you. A guy named Vishnu worked at Tim Hortons, but uh, employees found out that he, or rather customers found out that he had to drop out of his IT program at York University because of financial constraints. Well, his customers love him. And once they found out about this, they started a GoFundMe page to try to get him back to school, to raise some money so he could go back. And so far, they've raised $29,000 to help get Vishnu back to school. Impressive stuff. Well, there you go. That's always nice to focus on some positive and uplifting stories in what has not been the most uplifting year. Well, that's for sure. I would agree. And I mean, I guess it's only a couple a month into 2021, but we can only hope that it's going to be a better year than the last. Yeah, I sure hope so. All right, John, um, uh, great to chat and we will talk again soon. Yeah, talk to you later, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.